0: Interrupt our program to bring you this important message.
1: Hi, I'm Jackie Wanna play?
0: You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid.
1: Ghouls and gore.
0: And sometimes
1: a little more. My bloody podcast.
2: <laughs> Welcome to my bloody podcast. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by Preston Barta and Mark Chaffardini for a fantastic episode today. On this episode, we have a special guest, a legendary intercontinental champion of film and acting, Michael Abbott Jr., Oh my gourd. He's been in films such as Mud and The Death of Dick Long. His new film, The Dark and the Wicked, is very scary and haunting. What a wonderful horror film. And we're so happy to have Michael Abbott Jr. on the show today. Welcome to my bloody podcast. Let's start at the very beginning, shall we, Michael? Where did it all begin for you in film?
1: About six or seven years of my career, I spent on stage. So primarily everything that I had done had been on stage up until that point. And a classmate of mine, Jeff Nichols, who uh, you might uh, know, uh, put together his debut feature film, Shotgun Stories. And... Uh, little to my knowledge, he wrote a role for me and said, hey, man, you're going to be in this movie. And I was like, wait, I only I only work on the stage, man. And he was like, don't worry about it. I'll walk you through it. And uh, and from that point on, Jeff has been a, a, a great source of support and uh, being able to, I've been in three of his films. And. And, and watching him work and uh, really kind of uh, a, a mentor to me in terms of in terms of uh, working in film. So I, I find I'm, I'm I feel very lucky to have had such a such a master to kind of show me the ropes. And now it's a it's a medium that I'm absolutely in love with.
2: That's great. And so going back to your theater roots, uh, was it true that you played uh, was it Cassio in um, Othello? I did. Wow. Oh, you've done your research. Yeah, way back in the day. That's uh, one of my it's my favorite Shakespeare and there've been so many iterations of the film. Can you talk a little bit about that playing Shakespeare and bringing some of that to your roles in film?
1: Well, you know, uh in terms of Shakespeare it's all in the text. So you know, if you, if you uh, realize the lines that you're saying there, there's never anything left to the imagination when it comes to Shakespeare. So if you're committed to your text and you know what you're saying and you have some intention behind what it is you're saying, then uh, hopefully you will convey uh, what it is that the author had, had intended to be conveyed. And uh, you know, no better author in the world than than william shakespeare i I've, I've, i I feel lucky to have had the the training that I had. I feel like it it even though it was classical theater, it certainly works its way into every project that i that I work on
2: right, and so doing the Shakespeare you have to be you know like lyrically like a wordsmith and so I think part of your resume might have said something you might be a lot licensed auctioneer. is that true as well?
1: That's right. A bit of a bit now ten. A bit of a bit now fifteen. Now fifteen. A bit of a bit. A bit of a bit. A, bit of a bit now fifteen. Now twenty. Hey, bit of a bit now twenty. Twenty over here. Give me twenty five. Twenty five here. Thirty. Give me thirty five. I've been around the block.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so is that something you just practice at, or does that come naturally? Because I try to do that with life, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> You know, I uh, I I
1: grew up on a farm way back in in uh, East Tennessee, and my my parents used to take me to these livestock auctions when I was uh, a, a wee lad, and uh, I was always so taken aback by by the auctioneers and and their their speech patterns, and I think it was just uh, I think I just kind of took it in. I never really worked at it. I would probably be a lot better at it if I if I did put some time into it, but it's a fun pastime. I do some, uh, uh, charity auctions now, but, uh, you know, at one time it, it paid the bills. Oh, that's
3: that's amazing.
1: You're very good at it.
3: (laughs) I must say. Speaking of Shakespeare, I know Brian, you were just talking about like, just like how much of that depends on the words, but yet some of the work that I'm, that I'm familiar of yours with, like the death of Dick Long, which a lot of that is there's words in it, but there's so much, like in between the lines, it's, there's so much subtlety there. And it requires you to like react to things. And so I'm just curious what you've learned between both of those styles where something that does require a lot of language versus something that may, you have to fill in those voids yourself. Uh,
1: I, you know, I I think one of the lessons that I learned later in my career, I, I wish I'd learned sooner, but there's so much said in silence. And the power of silence and the power of listening talking and listening, which is to to, to to a regular person talking and listening seems like such a an easy you know simple thing to do. but as an actor uh, to listen and react in, in in an organic way is is certainly one of the biggest challenges for an actor, and especially for something like uh, the death of Dick long. Um, there was so much. There was so much said in silence, especially in that film, that uh, if you if you took the time to actually listen, and listen and allow yourself to be affected by what your partner was saying, then I I, I think it fills the moment in a, in a way that you know adding a line would never be able to to do. You know, you, you're able to accomplish things that words can't necessarily
3: accomplish. Right, right. Um, To talk a little more about The Death of Dick Long, uh, I I spoke with the director at Fantastic Fest and something I brought up to him, which is why The Death of Dick Long has been a movie that's meant so much to me over the years is um, when I watched it there was something that happened uh, to me when I was in high school that was something I, a dark side of myself that I wasn't exactly proud of. And this is this particular character Zeke, he had a dark side to him, and it helped me realize, like, you know, we all we all have maybe have skeletons in our closet and things that we're not exactly proud of. And this movie provided a lot of healing for me to like revisit those moments in my life and just like accept that they happened and what. The person that I am today, like the, that led to me here today being somebody who recognizes uh, what, what happened and how, how to deal with those things. And so I'm just curious, did you have any of those uh, conversations with yourself or like did you think about uh, like the magnitude of like the power of, of this film and like what it could uh, do for other people? And did it have any effect on you with your own things in your life?
1: Certainly. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the circumstances for Zeke were very high. Uh, you know, the, there are some parallels between Zeke and Michael in, in the death of Dick or in the, the dark and the wicked, uh, you know, the stakes were so high that Zeke was willing to do whatever it took in order to keep his family safe and, uh, out of the public's eye right. and obviously he Zeke had a lot of skeletons in his closet. Um, and as uh, as a person from the South, I think one of the challenges is, you know, men from the South tend to not wear their feelings and their hearts on their shoulder. They tend to, to push a lot of that down, to tamper a lot of that down. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges with Zeke because he did have some of these monologues where he was kind of emoting to his wife and, and another actor might have uh, taken those two, two, two up up and playing to the back of the house. But being from the South, I kind of know these guys and I feel like, you know, the the chances of them emoting to, to a, a Meryl Streep caliber, uh, probably not going to happen because as soon as you show any type of emotion you show weakness at least that's that's what i kind of grew up around um so i think you know gauging that gauging those emotions for zeke i think uh was probably one of the biggest challenges but yeah death of dick long was a a fantastic experience and and uh it's one of those films that uh continues to find an audience Mm -hmm. um I I don't think, you know, it, it had the, the marketing power behind it just because they didn't know who the hell to market it to. Um, yeah. um but when you have that type that type of uh uh content, you know, it starts to get a little tricky. So I certainly I certainly understand the challenges from that standpoint.
3: Yeah. But well, Preston,
1: I'm glad that I'm glad you enjoyed the I'm glad it, it spoke to you.
3: Yeah, we all loved it. And just so you know, I wasn't having sex with a horse or anything when I was young. It was just like vandalism and things like that.
0: He's lying. He had sex with a horse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So with The Dark and the Wicked, it's a a familial drama and there's a lot of subtextual things going on, not a lot of surface tension, uh, not a lot of surface scares. So how can that sort of tension between, you know, siblings and uh, a mother and the offspring how can that be scarier? How can that be, have more tension to it than say a jump scare or, you know, the, the devil your shoulder, you know, wh- what specifically made you say, I would love to play Michael in this. Uh, but, you know,
1: it's that's that's an interesting question i have never been a huge fan of the horror genre or the psychological thriller genre for no other reason than they scare the shit out of me i you know i go to bed and i have nightmares and i'm like why am i doing this to myself so uh, when i read the script it was the first time i felt a a uh, an organic personal connection to a character in a horror film i felt like it was the, they were real people uh, dealing with real personal issues, uh, like losing losing a loved one, uh, isolation, uh, loneliness, abandonment, and uh, you know I think and then you throw religion in there, which is a whole new blanket that that only adds to to the subtext of what 's going on. I think you know families there are so many different dynamics for families, I know my family has a you know it's a it's a crazy world out there uh i think i think what can make it scary is that people can relate to it uh everyone has a different relationship with their family and i think that the impact that those relationships can have uh kind of really play a major part in in who we become as we get older so i think uh you know one of the things that was great about this film was, uh, I was working with Marin Ireland again, we were playing siblings, and this was the second time we had played siblings. We had been in a film called In the Radiant City uh, in in 2016 that Jeff Nichols had produced. So we already had somewhat of a a relationship built, uh, a rapport to work from. So because of that, we were able to take things a little further and to deepen Deepen the the organic feel of of the relationship that we were bringing to the table. I think that was something that was uh, obviously uh, uh, enticing to Brian, and it certainly was enticing to Marin and I. There was actually another actress attached to play the role of Louise, and uh, we, there was a shift in schedule that actress had to drop out. and I and I told the producers and I told Brian. I said you have to get Marin because she will blow this thing out of the water. And I tell you her, her performance in this film, I feel like there, there's no other actress working today. And I will say this a hundred, I don't say this often. There's no other actress that is just as captivating on stage as they are on screen than, than, than Marin Ireland. I feel like she, she throws herself a hundred percent committed into everything she does. And I feel like her performance
0: really shines in this. Mm-hmm. It, I I agree it does and you know it's sort of it's sort of an impasse uh at a point in the story where your character chooses to retreat because he chooses what's more important to him. She has a chance to escape but she goes back and I think that that's an interesting not to say anyone made the right decision but it's that sort of what do you do at the end of line you know barring demonic possession barring ghouls and goblins it's it, you know it's like what what's important to you. So I think that you both of your characters chose interesting paths. And I think that the, you know, the story gave you that, uh, that room to run. I think you guys both did an excellent job. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Um, can Can you talk to me about one specific scene? I'd like to know the logistics of it. There's um, it's, I think it's on a Tuesday if I remember my chronology or maybe maybe Wednesday. Um, it's a point in the movie where you kind of find what happens to your mother Uh, It's a very interesting shot. It's a single take where the camera pulls out, the goats jump over the trip wire, you both try to um, deal with your mother. How did you do that in one take? And, you know, was that, you know, were there any support wires helping lift your mother down? Please explode that scene, if you will. Uh, well, that was, uh, that was a, uh,
1: Oh, wow. I don't know how much I'm supposed to give away, uh, but <laughs> uh, <of> you <laughs> put me in a predicament here, Mark. Uh, no, that was, that was a, a, a tough day. That was uh, obviously, um, it was a, a, a stunt woman hanging from the rafters of the barn. Um, and she was held by a, a support cable But when she was released from that cable, I did take the full weight of her. And it was, you know, one of the one of the I feel like one of the best attributes of this film was that we were able to shoot on the farm that Brian grew up on. Oh, really? wrote this film knowing that he was going to shoot it on the ranch that he, you know, became a man on, basically. So he knew he knew every inch of this area that, that he wanted to play. He'd been thinking about these shots for years. And I think we really benefited from that because I think the farm becomes a character unto itself in, in the story. Um, But, you know, the the crew did a masterful job in terms of uh, lighting uh, uh, set design they they took what was already there and just kind of built upon it the, the The lighting is very natural, the whole place was very dark, so you know very seldom did we have to pretend to be scared because uh, the place is really spooky it 's out in the middle of nowhere there 's not a neighbor you know anywhere near that N- no one in town had any idea what we were doing behind these gates uh, making this film. So I think uh you know, in terms of scenes like that, being immersed in those circumstances, as long as we committed to what was really happening, the scare just kind of worked. it just kind of fell into place for us and mm-hmm. and then, to have a partner like Marin uh it really kind of grounds the whole the whole thing
0: well, you know, to go back to what we said earlier about the you know the the literary um prowess of someone like Shakespeare. Uh, I 'm not saying that uh, Brian can tread those waters, but there's a line that is uh, done in a scene with you and Xander Berkeley, where you talk about a wolf. and I just think that was really exceptional writing, that sort of monologue. Were there any takeaways that really impressed you and said you know i 'm really glad to be on this this project, or wow, that that uh, the way that dialogue came together really opened my mind uh, theatrically or as an actor?
1: I mean, I, I I'm certainly thrilled that I was a part of the project altogether. Uh, I think, you know, Brian and I spoke shortly after I accepted the role. We started talking via, uh, almost said facemail. Is that even a thing? Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I think one of the things that benefited our working relationship is that we had similar upbringings. We had similar family dynamics. So we had a way of communicating with each other that I think only uh, helped uh, deepen uh, Michael's character within this family unit. Does that answer your question, or is that
0: totally Un- unpack it more for me, Michael? Dig dig deeper. What? Just kidding. <laughs> no, no, that that's, that, that that's fine. I will. How long do you have? We have three hours. Oh, sweet. <laughs> We're gonna play checkers at two thirty. Are we live? <laughs> <laughs> we will heavily edit this. No. Um. Last, last, real quick question. Uh, how did you decide on the the movie took place in Texas? Um, how did you d- develop your accent? What uh, what were your sources of inspiration for uh? Because we three Texas people uh would know kind of what does and does not pass a smell test with Texans. But uh, how did you decide on how to talk
1: in the movie? Well, I, I grew up in uh, in Tennessee. So, I already have an uh, especially when I talk to family or friends from back home, uh, I can certainly slip into that that Texas accent pretty quick uh, I had the been the benefit of being in in town for a little bit before we started shooting uh, so we spent a lot of time out at the local bars and the boot scoots and uh, you know uh, having conversations with the locals obviously not telling them why we were there but uh, um, it's it's one of the things that I find kind of comes natural to me in terms of finding that pace uh, especially out in a in a, in an atmosphere as like this ranch um, you know life life moves a little slower out there and uh, and I think that you know you 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 end up finding that cadence in your speech um but i think uh yeah i mean I, in in the conversations i had with Brian, i think uh when when he and i talk to each other we we find ourselves slip, slipping back into that uh southern uh slower speech patterns so so that was helpful too <laughs> but uh gotcha. I, you know i i hesitate to say it comes natural but it, it, to a certain extent it, it does
2: Mm. Fair, Fair enough. It's, Fair enough. Yeah, It's very true. Like I like the speaking in Texas, uh, it's it is all you gotta do is talk a little slower. Right. <laughs> and it's uh it's good.
1: <laughs> but but with the same intention and you know, all of the same goals, just just take your time.
2: Right, right. And so um I wanna talk about I've heard you refer to something on this movie called Shooting the Triangle. Uh can you explain that? Shooting the triangle, what that means.
1: Well, uh, Marin and I, this was this was both of our first horror films. So, uh, you know, within the first couple of days, Marin and I, between scenes, we were kind of like, geez, the hell's taking so long? I feel like these scenes are taking forever to shoot. And I think Brian at some point was like, I feel like these guys think we're moving really slow, but I should probably explain to them what's going on. So Brian explained it to us, uh, as the triangle. And when you're, when you're, when you're shooting horror films like this, there's so much extra coverage, uh, especially in the scare scenes. And, you know, uh, I had a chance last year, well it just aired a couple of weeks ago, but I did, uh, the, the, the season premiere of, uh, fear of the walking dead, which actually shoots in, in Texas also. Um, And that was a three-camera shoot. So I didn't really, even though that was probably considered a horror genre project, I didn't really get the full effect because there were three cameras and they could set those cameras up twice and we'd get, you know, triple the amount of footage. Uh, Dark and the Wicked, we had one camera. So, so this triangle uh, was basically his way of explaining to us the, the the different setups for the different shots. And and once he explained that to me, uh, we realized that we actually weren't ma- we weren't wasting time. We were doing exactly what we were supposed to be doing. Uh, but in order to sell those jump shots and the scares, you 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 have to have that extra coverage in order to in order to fill it out.
2: Cool. Cool. Um, and all I got to bring up uh, Xander Berkeley. You both have uh, the Walking Dead alum stuff, but uh, I want to know, cause I know there's a spider in the movie, but there's a situation that was on set with a spider and Xander. And also with Xander, I hear that he does his own makeup. And I never heard of that, uh, you know, with an actor before. And I didn't know if you like that, would you ever do your own makeup, but talk a little bit about the story and the makeup and working with Xander, please.
1: Well you know uh, xander is uh is is the ultimate veteran on set, obviously he's been around for years, and I think he's been doing this for forty years um, and and projects that uh, we all know and love you know he, he he has the resume to prove that if if Xander Berkeley shows up on set and says that he brought his own costume and wants to do his own makeup, then you just kind of stand back and let him do his thing uh, you know, I was, I was excited to have him on set. We only had him for a day or two, honestly. And, uh, you know, he, he, he took a little prep time, did his own makeup, got into his own costume. He brought some, brought some options and then showed up on set and he was, he was in character until we wrapped until he was gone. But before his first shot, we were shooting out by the gate outside and, and, uh, It was supposed to be raining and it wasn't. So they brought in the rain truck and uh, he was kind of off somewhere and it looked like he was, he was taking pictures of himself with a, with a cell phone. And we're like, what the hell is Xander doing over there? Is he, is he microdosing? What's, what's Xander (laughs) Berkeley doing over there in the corner? And he walked over to us and he had this uh, spider crawling across the brim of his hat. And if if you've seen the film, you know that there there are some spider instances in the film. Uh, so so to him, it was like, oh, this is this is a miracle. This is how how is this happening? So the, the, the spider ends up getting treated better than anyone on set at this point. But he managed to keep that spider on his hat the whole time he was shooting, and it was almost as if he had this thing trained in Hollywood it would it would crawl to the left side of the brim and then go back to the right and then over the top and he was so committed to this uh spider making itself in, into each shot uh it was really kind of a joy to watch and then when you watch the movie you're like oh shit of course <laughs> perfect you could never train a spider a to, spider to, to walk across a hat like that I mean only Xander
2: Berkeley could pull that off that's great. That's great. Um, wonderful. I'm glad you got to work with them. That's cool. Um, and in relation to working with somebody, I want to step away a little bit from uh, The Dark and the Wicked. Uh, you spent a little bit of time with Burt Reynolds, that correct? I did, yeah. And allegedly he told you some of the best stories from Hollywood. Is there one that you can share with us that just blew your mind? There's, there is one story. <sighs> Just in the following story is too hot for this podcast and has been removed for your safety. Now, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. That's a wonderful story. And I've got to move on. I think, unarguably, one of the best uh, people to play Elvis is Bruce Campbell and Bubba Hotep. But then you, Michael, come along and you uh, can do Elvis. Uh, When did this start? And... When did your first love of Elvis come to be? Jeez, uh, man. I, uh, I
1: was an Elvis fan f- for as far back as I can remember. I remember uh, taking a, a a towel and wrapping it around my neck when I was like six or seven years old and putting on shows for my family. And, uh, and then it just kind of morphed into this thing that I had no control over. I, uh, entered a contest and 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 got to do some shows in vegas and uh, uh I you know grew up doing parties and playing convention centers and playing theaters and I had a a full band at one point and uh you know I just I, it was less about Elvis's music for me. And it was more about the persona of the King himself and how people viewed him. And that, I think that was what, what drew me to him and just the, the overall stage presence. Uh, I took, uh, I, I took great pride in trying to, uh, recreate, uh, an exact replica of a, a concert from 1973 at the international hotel. So, um, yeah and now you know i i don't really i haven't done it in in some time if i if i do it now it's it's for for something special for a while i was doing some uh some some gay weddings when when we when we finally got our shit together and legalized gay weddings uh, i was doing some some because i'm also uh, an ordained minister so uh, i am
2: too i am too oh
1: yeah 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 oh. you know, uh, the uh international uh, what is it the international life church or
2: I'm a part of Dudism. Big Lebowski.
1: Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You know, Elvis is, uh, I think, you know, one of those characters that will look back on 50 years from now and just be like, wow, that guy really had the world by the cojones. And, you know, you don't, you don't really experience that anymore. I think the closest thing to that would be like, bieber or or taylor swift but it's just not the same
2: you know? right and it was it was it elvis that you said you were performing from your family when you were younger that kind of drew you to the stage to acting and stuff like that
1: i you know i i, I think that certainly had a part had a part in it. i did a a production of the wizard of oz when i was in the first grade and i played the scarecrow and i remember coming out and uh, getting ready to say my first line and I was like, I'm ah, gonna say something else. And I don't remember what the lines were, but I, I did the whole show with my own dialogue and the audience was laughing and I was like, this is where it's at. This is, <laughs> this is what I got to do. Uh, so, you know, I grew up doing like television commercials and um, yeah, I, 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 I've been in love with it for as far back as I remember. Awesome. and i have no other skills honestly i if if someone told me tomorrow that you you can't be an actor anymore uh you're going to have to uh go to dental school or you know do something else i it will be over for me i have no other skills
0: well that 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 ear to ear grin that you just portrayed telling that story about the first grade uh, Wizard of Oz. I mean, that told us right there that this is in your DNA, that that is what you're meant to be doing. So, you know, you, you're you're on your way, Michael. And so I, just just short of saying rip those curtains down, put them over your shoulder and give us an Elvis, um, we're, we're thrilled to see you trying new things. Like, you know, for your first horror movie, geez, way to knock it out of the park. So it's, uh, I, I, certainly consider myself
1: very lucky. And, uh, you know, I know that, uh, tomorrow it could all go away. So I try and live in the moment and live each day to, uh, to the, to the, to the greatest ability that I can and try to be, uh, true to myself. And, you know, I just like to tell, I like to tell stories and I like to draw people in the fact that you, you spoke to me, Mark, about, uh, the death of Dick Long. That's why we make fucking movies because we want to impact people. We want people to talk and uh we want people to uh think about these projects uh long after they've been viewed.
0: Well, you know you you said earlier that um you know, you're not a horror fan. And so we this this, this being a horror podcast, is there a is there a triple bill that you might want to put the dark and the wicked up against and just if you were theoretically going to run your own theater and you know like you said, if you had to pick a different profession tomorrow and you were a theater goer or a theater uh, organizer, what what would you put uh, Dark and the Wicked up against or, or in a triple bill with?
1: Uh, you know, I, I'm i not sure what I would play. I, I feel like the Dark and the Wicked kind of stands on its own. I think I think Brian, one of the things that Brian does here that works so well is he manages to meld uh, horror with psychological thriller. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily something that, uh, people have been privy to in the past, so you know I, I think he's done a masterful job at uh, uh, giving both elements to to an audience. So you know we're we're really kind of opening ourselves up to a whole new group of people by 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 melding those two. But you know I I think of films like um, uh, Hereditary, uh, Parasite. I would I would certainly throw the dark and the wicked in there just to uh mess with people's minds a little bit. But you know, and it's not that I'm not a fan of horror. I would love horror if I didn't go to bed and have nightmares. Um, those are the best dreams though. Right. Are they though? Are they I don't know. I don't know. I think I I, I think the the dreams I have without viewing horror right before sleep serve me much better than than mm-hmm. some of yeah, the images yeah. that uh, that horror has left me with.
2: Yeah. yeah, the the remedy for that is just to put on like Seinfeld or Scrubs right on afterwards. Is, you <laughs> fall asleep to some happiness. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it's certainly not to watch the 11 o'clock news. I tell you. <laughs>
0: That's true. For sure.
2: Um, so I have another uh, fun question for you. Um, being a fan of the Kentucky Derby and watching that almost every year, do you have the perfect recipe for a mint and julep?
1: Uh, I don't. I have the perfect recipe for for drinking them. Certainly, uh, <laughs> there were there were a number of years that uh, that I attended the the, the Kentucky Derby. Um, I have family in Louisville. Uh, we shot in the Radiant City in Louisville. I shot another movie called And Then I Go in Louisville. Um, I, you know, I, I pushed to have as many things shot in, in, in the city of Louisville as possible because, uh, it, it, it's such a great, great town. The people there are, are awesome. Uh, unfortunately it, it, it made the news in a, in a negative light this year, which, uh, hopefully they're learning from their mistakes and, uh, they can, they can get their shit together. But. I love the Kentucky Derby. I love everything that it stands for, the history. Um, but in terms of a, a mint julep recipe, I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I don't even know what's in it aside from mint, and I don't want to know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, you we
1: know, feel the next day, so I the,
0: guaranteed there's probably kerosene in it. <laughs> Um, well, let's I'll... take a let 's take a little turn uh sort of a family friendly turn when last we spoke you were you were kind of big into Halloween outfits for the whole family what was uh what was the gangs get up this year uh the gangs get up you know we've been
1: we've been big um uh uh group costume family and friends this year you know twenty twenty kind of threw us for a curve uh we, we I live here in brooklyn so uh, the family and I realized pretty quickly that uh, a Brooklyn Halloween wasn't going to be what ha- it has been in the past. So we actually ended up in in Pennsylvania uh, at my in-laws' house, which was a, a great decision. We uh, the the kids were able to do some 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 mini trick or treating, and uh, my six-year-old was really big into his. From, from about six months ago, he was like, I want to scare people in the yard this year. I want to have a haunted yard. So uh, we went full out. I set up a, I set up a tent in the yard at the end of the driveway where the kids would be coming for candy. And we filled the tent with uh, um, uh, mannequin parts and we put them in plastic bags and taped them closed and sprayed them with blood and cockroaches and we had some bones that we found from the woods, from, from animals that had been viciously slaughtered in the woods behind the, behind the house. And, uh, and so I, I wasn't really anyone. I was just in a black one-piece suit and a black mask and gloves and uh, stood like a, a statue until the kids came up and then would just scare the crap out of them. And, and I became a hero to my son that day.
0: That's awesome. That's great. That's what fathers are supposed to do. Congrat. Well done.
1: It was all. It was all this year. It was all gore and blood. But uh, next year, I'm sure we'll be back to to uh, a group theme.
2: Nice. Um, also, since you're such a big purveyor of cinema film, are there any particular scenes in movies that have always stuck with you uh, that you just inspire? You wake up, you're like, oh, this scene does it for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see Dracula in the corner.
1: <laughs> uh, any scenes that have stuck with me? I mean, the, I don't know about specific scenes. I There are definitely s- specific performances. I think about, um, you know, if, if, if I had to spout off or rank, I think about Billy Bob Thornton in Sling Blade. I think when I saw that film... Uh, it, it, it certainly changed my perspective of of the film medium and wanting to be a part of it. I think of uh, uh, Robert Duvall in The Apostle. I can that's one that's one film that I can watch, you know, five times in a row and not ever get bored with it. Uh, the performances in that film and Sling Blade across the board. Uh, you know, you 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 have a a, a story that draws you in. And these I love a broad, rich character and and, and uh Billy Bob in in Slingblade was I just think incredible. And I and I hope that we get to see another performance like that from him. I feel like, you know, we he he's kinda disappeared from from the screen a little bit. I would love to have him back in a in a role just as rich and broad as as he was in that. But there, are, there are performances. I don't think about singular scenes, but um, you know, one scene that sticks with me, I guess, would be uh, uh, "There's no earthly way of knowing which direction we are going" um, from uh, from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, that one really stuck with me.
3: Uh, we all relate to that one, right now.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right, that was the, that was the perfect pandemic film mm-hmm. before we even. <laughs> I
2: knew what that meant, but it's something in Gene Wilder's performance that made you love him so much, and then instantly can scare the shit out of you, and then turn it right back around and make you fall all in love with him again. There was something about his performance in that that was just exquisite, right from from the get go. I mean, from the moment he, you know,
1: the kids were at the gate and he walked out the door, walking really slow with the cane, and then went into that forward roll. You were like, whoa. What is this? Who is this guy? And I, and I've heard, uh, I think it was inside the actor's studio. I watched him him talk about that specific scene, and that was what he brought that to the table. That was not scripted. He said, "This is what I want to do. I want to roll. I want to walk out slow with a cane, and then I want to roll." And, and the director was like, "All right, Gene Wilder, let him do it." It's uh, you know, it
2: just sets the tone for the rest of the film. Oh, wonderful. I love it. Uh, Press, and any last uh, questions?
3: Yeah, I'd like to know a little more about your uh, process as an actor. I mean, something that, which is why Brian and I, uh, we asked this question about like what scenes mean a lot to you because, whenever I'm working on a project or something like that, I tend to go to things that mean a lot to me, certain projects or anything like that. So when you're going into something that may be like meaty territory, do you, outside of like the research process for uh, whatever the movie may be about, is there something that's like a bit of a cinematic Bible to you or something that it's important for you to have in order to go forward? Uh,
1: You know, I think... um... I think knowing the script forward and back has always been helpful for me. And that's not just knowing my dialogue, but knowing everyone else's dialogue and knowing where my character fits into the story, how my character propels the story forward. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's a puzzle of full of pieces and knowing which piece you are to, to, to complete the puzzle. Um, You know, and then and then the given circumstances, who I am, where I am, why I'm there, what I want, uh, how bad I want it, and and what I'm willing to do in order to get it. And if I don't get it, uh, what's at stake? So I think you know that that's certainly a list of questions that I ask myself over and over again. And then trying to figure out what things from. Michael Abbott jr's life can I bring to the role that might help deepen the character um, you know obviously dark and the wicked for instance uh, I've never dealt with uh, my home being possessed uh, but you try and find things in your life that might give you a visceral reaction and try and, try and, and parlay that into the into the script and uh, what 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 those organic reactions would be under those circumstances. I think, you know, it's, it's doing the actor's work. And then once you get on set, putting all of that shit behind you and realizing, hey, I've done the work, now it's time to trust it. And, uh, and then having a rapport with your director. And hopefully you have a director that's open and honest and willing to, to pull you aside and say, here, I think this is re- working really well this isn't working so well, let's try something different here. And I, that was something I, I certainly had with Brian. And I think it was because of our upbringing and having such a, such a, a similar family dynamic. Gotcha. Did that answer the question? That was about a, what was that? 25 minute answer.
3: <laughs> no, it's no, no, was good. <laughs> so did you have to uh, brave watching horror movies to familiarize yourself with Brian's work?
1: Uh, I had already seen I had seen The Strangers, and uh, and I, I did watch it again, um, which uh, you know <laughs> led to more nightmares. Uh, but uh, I, did, I did familiarize myself with his catalog just to kind of get a get a feel for uh, for where he was coming from. But I feel like this this film was different because it was so so much more personal to him in terms of dealing with family and uh, and the parallels that he had drawn himself to this story. Uh, so I, I think it really deepened Brian's process. So as much as I had familiarized myself with his past projects, it, it only prepared me to a a certain extent. And then once I was there face-to-face with him and saw this ranch that we were gonna film on, then the pieces really started to fall into place. Gotcha, very
2: good. Awesome, well, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, We had such a pleasure having you on the show today.
1: Well, thank you, guys. I, I appreciate you uh, talking to me, and I hope everyone will go see this film. It opens on Friday, November 6th, and they say uh, it's going to be in theaters and drive-ins that are deemed safe along with uh, digital, on-demand, digital HD, and Shudder. Check it out on Shudder.
3: Awesome.
2: Awesome. There you go. My Bloody Podcast. Yeah! <laughs> Yeah, that was so funny. I was going to lead you into that, and I was going to say the spotlight's with you, Michael, now in the vein of the best Elvis movie. Please tell everyone when, how, and why to watch The Dark and the Wicked. As Elvis? That's
1: what you want? Yes. Oh, Brian. Check out The Dark and the Wicked, baby. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Thank you. That's all I got. What is it? Like one o'clock? I don't even know what time it is.